This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a 10-week documentary film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turnitonline. Kino Lorber is proud to release a new 4K restoration of Andrei Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice. A haunting vision from one of cinema's greatest poets, The Sacrifice opens October 20th at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and October 27th at the Quad Cinema in New York before expanding to select cities. It will arrive on Blu-ray and DVD in spring 2018. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. The 55th New York Film Festival has drawn to a close, but there's still plenty to say about the films that were on the main slate, some of which will be opening soon. To process these titles, I was joined by... I'm Wesley Morris. Uh, I'm a critic at the New York Times. Uh, I'm Michael Kresge. I'm director of uh, creative and um, editorial here at Film Society and contributor to Film Comment Magazine, of course. Hi, I'm Elisa, and I'm the head of programming at Metrograph. <sighs> Melly Killian, I'm a film programmer. <laughs> and a contributing editor to Film Comment. And contributing editor to Film Comment. Here's our conversation, recorded in front of a live audience on Friday. I think we'll just start off by um, talking about the elephant in the room, which is Wonder Wheel. Interestingly, it's as we the were elephant in the room. This this room is pretty boring. Um, <laughs> sorry, bad news. But because um, as we were preparing for this podcast, couldn't help but notice that um, the men saw Wonder Wheel and none of the women did. The two gay men have. Oh, well. Just to clarify. <laughs> You're part of the patriarchy, too bad. Um, so what were your impressions of it? How do you feel it stacks up to, you know, Cafe Society, other late Allen? That seems like a fair place to compare it to. I would say I think that the Ferris wheel or the idea of, of the, the Wonder Wheel itself is a good metaphor for late period Woody Allen. Mm. You know, it was a, I was just saying this in the lobby, like you can, it'll stop and you can get on. You can stop, you can get off. It's, it'll go around and around and around, and it's the same thing. It never changes. Uh, For a hundred years. Well, but you know, it's it's not. I, I did not enjoy it. Uh, I I liked Kate Winslet, but it's not. I, I don't know. I. It's kind of this old-fashioned uh, Eugene O'Neill-ish. Um, some some people have likened it uncharitably to dinner theater. But uh, it takes place in Coney Island in the 50s. Kate Winslet, I guess, is a former actress Mm -hmm. who's living with um, uh, the merry-go-round guy. His name is Humpty, and one of my favorite named characters in recent film. Um, And all sorts of complications ensue when the daughter, their daughter, or his daughter, comes back after having been lost for a long time, I've been taken up with a gangster. So it, it's, a ser- it's a serious Woody Allen film, serious in quotation marks. I'm, I'm talking of, uh, I'm someone who actually tends to defend a lot of even latter-day Woody Allen films. Um, and this one, that there are some credibility issues with the plot, perhaps, but, um, and I just 
probably shouldn't say too much because it, yeah. it technically premieres tomorrow. Um, but uh, I think the cinematography is, it looks pretty astonishing, but you have to kind of go with it because it's forthrightly artificial. Like it, it, it purposely puts you in this kind of weird zone, like a liminal zone where you, um, you have to just kind of be, okay, so it's expressive gels like every five seconds. Um, but it's, um, let's see what people have to say about it when they see it. Well, I would just say that, I mean, one of the things that, one of the, the what I mean about this idea of this Ferris wheel, it's probably a bad metaphor, but basically, there are things that he will keep trying to go, there, there he's got a not apparently bottomless well of, of props. It's like an improv exercise where he's pulling plot ideas or character tropes out of a hat and then recombining them for... And depending on what mood he's in, you get the movie you get. Um, this feels, I mean, I guess they all sort of feel of a piece or like each other. But this one just feels like so much less than you would get in something like Blue Jasmine or um, Cassandra's Dream, which is my favorite of, of this iteration of, of Woody Allen's career. Um, but I'm curious why you guys, I mean, did you guys have, did you actively skip it? Or did you just, were you just unable to see it? It's been a while since I've felt any real urgency. There's no urgency. Yeah. No. Same, so, yeah, kind yeah. of save them for the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a shame because Vittorio Storaro, Cafe Society, is kind of a perfect plane movie, but... The, the photography is beautiful. Like, it's, it's really just, it's a shame I mean, that... I would say that about Magic in the Moonlight, too. These films are actually oh, yeah. very beautiful. Yeah. Um, they could, the pots could be silly. I mean, the, the, the Ferris film number four is one thing. I could also, I, I, I think of him as kind of like a, uh, like a professor who's gotten too old and he teaches the same course every single year. <laughs> yeah, that's but good. He find, every once in a while he finds new ways There'll of There'll be something he adds up. to the syllabus that makes yeah. it worth, right. worth week, week 12. <laughs> Come back for for what Woody Allen has to offer. Right. Well, maybe we can switch gears as a Ferris wheel switch gears to talk about Claire Hopefully Denis. not. Claire Denis. <laughs> Just stay in one ear. Well, how about we talk about Let the Sunshine In? Because that's something that we've all seen. And what? Okay, most of us have seen. It's a very unique Claire Denis film in that it's not, it's sort of a departure in terms of like, theme, let's say. It's sort of her doing a rom-com, but it's also sort of her doing like a Hong Sang-Soo-ish sort of a narrative, but maybe, Lisa, you could talk more about it, because I know you were quite fond of it. Uh, yeah, I really liked it. Um, it did kind of feel like Claire Denis doing Hong Sang-Soo, but kind of Hong Sang-Soo crossed with like Trouble Every Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's so much sensuality in the film. There's so much... There's no vampire. Uh, That's the thing. It feels sort of like an above water kind of like more parochial uh, trouble every day where, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of goes very far on the emotional scale of like showing this woman in um, the sort of like emotional swings of her her life with regards to relationships, um, but keeps it all, you know, very much like... um, limited within this like sort of quotidian environment and uh, I thought that it was an amazing performance by Binoche. A lot of people have commented that you know they could kind of see Isabelle Huppert in that role also but I feel like Binoche kind of really really worked in a way that she doesn't always work. I mean sometimes you're just so aware that it's her and she has mm-hmm. this amazing mask face 
but she managed to come across as being this incredibly warm and human presence. And um, even though she does go into histrionics, I mean, that is sort of part of it. She's, it it's, she's a crazy character, but it's presented with incredible tenderness and humanity. Yeah, I saw Claire Denis here talking last week, and she, she was talking just rapturously about Juliette Binoche and um, the pleasure of being able to film her and, um, and the pleasure of making this film. It was actually very moving. I think it comes across in, in the film that it's this sort of luminous portrait of this actress. I think I read that the French title actually translates to something like the beautiful sun within. Well, that's what, yeah, which is the, the advice that Gerard Depardieu gives her at the end. Yeah, and like she is just, uh, I mean, she is this crazy character. She has these sort of outbursts at moments and does a, a couple things that are like pretty, you know, unlikable in the film. However, she is this presence that you can't take your eyes off of and this figure that is so magnetic that it's, I mean, it's incredible to watch. Yeah. Is she the actress? Who is play, or the star who's played more actresses for more directors? She's not an actress in this. She's, what is she? She's an artist. She's an artist. Okay. Uh, yeah. she, I mean, there's some sort of she's played more creative people for more creative people, and it's really mm -hmm. interesting that yeah, she's always really performative. Such the, a range the performativity of, is like yeah, yeah. foregrounded right. in the plot. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 also one of those things where I, I was talking about this with someone where you see her start to paint in the film, and you think, all right, well that doesn't look like it's going to end up being a real work of art. <laughs> She's just kind of splattering some stuff on the floor. But it's still, it's Julia Binoche. So I believe almost everything she does. That is supposedly one of her paintings. is actually the, the oh, wall cool. that's smeared with blood in Trouble Every Day, just a, a piece of it on a canvas. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, when you say you don't always love Julia I actually always love Julia Binoche. I, even in garbage. It's not a popular I, I, She was in Godzilla. She was in the first, no, I've heard a lot of people say that, but they think she's too much, she's too actressy, she's so emotive and the emotions are all on the surface. I mean, I, that's all fine with me. I want you to do anything. Yeah, I was talking the other day with someone about how she's also been in these sort of more commercially accessible films by a number of directors that aren't known for that. Uh, a Couch in New York, Certified Copy. Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> but she does bring, she's an incredibly intelligent actress and brings so much to the roles, but she's also someone who has this, this magnetism and like star power that is I don't know, why do we begrudge her that? I know, it drives me crazy. Yes, no, I just, I, I, what I mean. The general youth, society, society I, I, stuff. I just mean that she is, you're so aware of her being her, mm -hmm. that there's this sort of like meta quality every time you see her on screen, which well, is probably, you know, contributes you to your theory of her playing the most creative people, including actresses. Um, I think people, uh, critics also tend to dogpile on people when they become too succe too successful, too big. Like she won an Oscar. I, I remember in the early aughts using things like uh, Chocolat, that famous Weinstein film, and everybody was everybody started kind of hating her for a little while, and that was driving me insane because even in movies like that, she just she she has that bright sunshine. It's actually true. She kind of, she's luminous in everything. I mean, there was a, what's that movie where the poster is Steve Carell and his head's oh, on a thing of pancakes? Uh, Dan in real life. Yeah, even in that, she's good. <laughs> because she, I mean, that's what's so wonderful about this film is that Claire Denis, in, in another film, this character would just be, as, as other people alluded to, just exasperating, neurotic. Without over-explaining it, you come to understand why she's kind of neurotic, 
why she does need affection from these different men and sort of why she's like, oh, I'm tired of you, but maybe I love you and maybe I, t-. it's, it's, it's well, actually And, and we should tender. say, like, the film is, the film just, like, jumps from, like, one relationship to another. Mm-hmm. It's, that's how it's structured. And you only get the slightest sense of each one before it moves on. So it's kind of this weird alienating experience, yeah. that, like a Claire Denis film, where she, you know, she's, like, cutting out the stuff that is boring, right? right. So you just race through, through scenes. I just found, I, like, it moved so fast for me, I couldn't believe that it was yeah. over. Yeah, and I also love the part where she just yells when they're walking through nature, and she's like, "Oh, I guess you own the sky too." That's that's great. That's just I love I love Julie Binoche, and I love that she got to just unload on this random person. But um, it's her second uh, um, film that is sort of based in literary work, mm. right? She co-wrote the film, the script with um, a French uh, novelist whose name escapes me right now, but the, the source novel is called L'Inceste, Incest, um, which is uh, roughly based on a Roland Barthes text. And I don't know, I, I, I guess it's just interesting that she, you know, the, the pedigree, the uh, philosophical pedigree of her work goes so far. Like she, you know, worked with Jean-Luc Nancy on Trouble Every Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's able to turn that, you know, those ideas into something completely in her own um, cinematic language, and it's super impressive. Um, the only qualm I have about it is that I wanted more Gerard Depardieu. Oh my God, yes! <laughs> Where's the sequel? I want to see the sequel to this movie. Yeah, and I mean, or the inverse, where you get to see what Gerard Depardieu had been up to, and then oh you just get Julia Binoche at the end. Then yes. it would really be a Hong Sang Soo film. Yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, um, just quickly, I know Claire Denis has always cited Faulkner as a big inspiration for her. To, and, and again, I think you really feel it in this, where it's just a very unique approach to narrative, but also very tender. Um, maybe, speaking of tender things, we could switch to Faces Places, the Agnès Varda wonderful uh, Tour de France with JR, a man who is almost super annoying, but also very endearing. <laughs> I mean, I could watch Agnès Varda on screen doing basically anything. Um, and there are a lot of wonderful moments in the film. There are a lot of wonderful moments in the film. Um, I can't remember any of them, no. Uh, it's so I funny mean, you the, say that. The final moment where she's face off with Jean-Luc Godard's door is... Oh yes, that's a little I, bit of a spoiler. Yes, I can see how you're tiptoeing around it. Yeah, well... No, it's fine. No, we yeah. can talk about it. I think, I think actually... I, even know, a, I haven't even seen it and I know what happens. That cat's out. I mean, I, don't, I won't say, but... It's weird how that seems to have traveled. Well, I mean, it's like, it, I mean, I have to say that, you know, having watched the film recently, that's the, that is the scene that stays most in my mind. Because it is a very, like, fun, playful film. And then there's just this absolutely, like, gut-wrenching thing at the end where Godard just, like, twists a knife. And again, you don't really know if he's just being, like, playful and funny or if he just like and, and just like accidentally steps all I over say her feelings. not actually in the film. Yes, he leaves and he, a He's note. able to do that without ever actually appearing on screen, which is sort of an amazing thing to be yeah. able to accomplish. Yeah, but he made her sad. Oh, poor Agnes. To hell with him. But yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful film. I just, I enjoy watching them create that art so much. They travel through the countryside, they take photographs of local villagers and they blow them up to these huge you know, it, uh, larger than life scale, and then they, so they, they make them the stars of their own small towns, and it's, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. And it sounds, I mean, it, to describe it, it makes it sound like, oh, this is like just sort of a cute gimmick, but it really 
changes the way people perceive themselves. Other people view, you know, objects in their town or just near their town, and it's actually very, it, like, what results, I guess because we live in New York, we're used to, like, seeing big, giant things all the time, but it's actually, like, quite moving to see people, you know, understand where they live a little differently. It also yeah. sounds like her returning to something, I mean, it's a version of the thing that she always does, which right. is to be among people and to try to sort of, if not explain people to themselves, and explain people to other people. Right, like daguerreotypes um, and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. Are there any dissenting opinions oh. on faces? Because that actually would fascinate I, me no. if somebody hates faces, places. No, I think I was a little more resistant to JR. Well, who wouldn't um, be? Well, then but I, I will say that by the end, you know, he becomes this foil for her to be able to sort of, I, I mean, especially in the scene, I think, where she's on the beach and they're making the, um, she's trying to find the per perfect picture of her friend um, and sort of like being able to recount these stories to him. Like, you know, you do, he does kind of win you over, mm -hmm. but um, that was that would be my one. I, I was pretty resistant. Yeah. For well, she's also kind of resistant to him too. Like yeah. there are times where he makes like a kind of a like a seemingly inoffensive joke, and she's just like, "Why would you say that? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, why don't you take off your glasses? You're such a poser." Agnes Varda, very well known for discussing gender, the uh, square, by Ruben Osland, uh, super Swede. Um, deals a lot with masculinity and uh, art world too, so maybe we could jump to that now. I really like that movie. I like the Ruben Oslin project, right? Mm -hmm. um, however you guys feel about JR in Faces Places is how I felt about him when I saw Play. Mm -hmm. um, and I understood what he was trying to do, but the, it came along at this point where I felt like every every seventh or eighth filmmaker was trying to do a Michael Hanukkah impersonation, and this to me felt like a very bad one. But I also kind of respected where he, I, I liked the buttons it was trying to push, even though I don't think he quite understands what racism is. Um, if that makes any Anyway, so we'll just fast forward. We'll are fast you talking about play or talking about the square? Play. We're okay. I'm talking about play. Okay. The square is a whole other series of problems where he doesn't understand what racism is. Okay. Um, but I actually think that that movie is sort of about the failure to understand. It's more about the, 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 the incapacity to understand than, than, than the other movies. Mm. Or particularly that movie because... Um, the, the middle one isn't concerned with that at all. Or uh, not the middle Force one. Force Majeure? Force Majeure is yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a masculinity movie. Yes. Um, yes. I don't know. I, I mean, okay, so it, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, basically the story is uh, the director of an, of an art museum in Stockholm, right, mm -hmm. is, having a, is having a moment. <laughs> uh, he's kind of dating uh, a, a journalist or sleeping with a journalist. Um, an incident, there's an incident that, that occurs where he leaves a note. This to me is the Hanukkah bit, right? Like, mm. I don't know, do you guys think I'm crazy for thinking that they're associated? No, a lot of people say that. Okay. Um, um, I do think that all his best ideas seem to come from, from, from this idea of, of pranks and asshole behavior that has these sort of, um, cosmic, almost cosmic implications. So anyway, this thing happens to him and he leaves a note 
that is both serious and I think kind of, it's a joke at the same time. He wants what the note is asking for, but doesn't really think about what the implications of leaving the note will be. Because he wants his stuff back. He wants, well, he, well I'm trying to be, I'm trying You don't to, have to dance around. Okay. All right, so. People uh, who listen to this stuff love having movies spoiled for them, so it's fine. Okay. Don't. Well, but there are people in the audience who might not. But you are here. They are here for the um, first That happens at the beginning of the movie. I think it's okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't really know if that's a real reason. Not okay. I don't know. I mean, it's like that thing that's not the plot in many ways. Sorry, so I ground rules before he, he leaves this note asking for his stuff back. And they're... And, ask, and leave the note and asking for the stuff. There are implications. The movie sort of goes on... Uh, and does a bunch of other things, and then you remember that, oh yes, this note was left, and here now the movie will deal with, with how this note has affected what it turns out to be a little boy. Mm-hmm. Um, very charismatically acted kid, um, who was also of Arab descent. I like the sort of randomness of the philosophical questions being asked about mm-hmm. this movie. I mean, it, it, they have fixed themselves to set pieces and I think the set pieces are all great. And I like, I like what he wants to try to do in, in pushing these questions of human behavior. Mm-hmm. I know for some people it might be annoying, but I actually like, I like the pushing. Even if I don't like myself being pushed, he really is up to something and I, I like feeling that. Mm-hmm. Um, and things in this guy's life get increasingly worse and it's just really fascinating that this question of questions of censorship come up, questions of you know sexual propriety in public space come up. Uh, I don't know. I really I think it's I think it's a really good movie, uh, and I like I've come to like him more and more. Yeah, I mean I I think it's funny how you took a, a like a slightly defensive posture when you first started talking about it, thinking like, well, I'm sure everyone else here must hate this movie, but well, I like it. It's a movie you watch and you uh, just know that. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. I, but I, I, I did like his previous film, so I, I went in expecting, I don't know what I expected, but I guess because it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes this year, I thought maybe he had gone in a direction that was too mainstream, or if it appealed to too many people, there must be something wrong with it kind of thing. Um, but I mean, there's only eight people in the jury. I mean, it's <laughs> true. But it, got, but it got a really warm reception, and I thought, well, he's trying to piss people off, allegedly, with this film, so if he's getting such a warm reception, maybe something's wrong. Um, but no, I, I really liked it a lot, and I've seen it again since, because I'm writing about it, I wrote a feature on it for the next issue, so I really wanted to dig into it, and I think it holds up particularly well in a second viewing. Yeah. Um, I, 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 what I think is most interesting, without going too much into it, is that it, it's, um, it's set in this you know, art world, in the contemporary art world, but it's really not a satire of the art world. Yeah. It's really about these issues around masculinity and race and class in contemporary Europe. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and the art world happens to create a perfect backdrop for these questions. So you can have these outrageous set pieces. I think it was very savvy of him to set it there. There's a great sequence of a, of a museum maintenance person yes. tidying up around one of these installations that is just <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of real funny stuff, and and also the, a lot of and one of Ruben Austin's favorite things is sociological experiment type cinema. Like, how would you react within any given in a, in a given situation in public? And like, for instance, right now, if somebody in the audience had Tourette's, this happens in the movie, and these like really these really nasty things are being said, horrible things, but they keep going on with the panel 
because trying to. trying to go on with the panel, pretending like it's not happening right. um, for the sake of propriety or for the sake of goodwill. Um, but then, it, so there's always a question, well, how would you act in that situation? And he's always kind of sticking with people. But what's interesting to me, two things. One is that, so there are these things that could only happen in this crazy world of contemporary art. But then there are also so many scenes of a homeless person or someone begging for change and just seeing them be ignored. And it's like, do you stop for that person? Do you buy that woman well, a chicken ciabatta without onions? Well, and I think that I think that's really an interesting scene because yeah. I, I heard uh, somebody had somebody said, well, I really dislike the scene where the, the there's a homeless woman who asks for a chicken sandwich, a chicken ciabatta, and then and then he's he's going to do it. It's like oh, I'll buy it for you. Then she says, but no onions, and then he looks back with this look of how dare you ask that, and then the audience is also and we initially think. How dare she ask that? And then you think, why shouldn't she ask exactly. that? She doesn't have to eat onions just because yeah. she's homeless. Yeah, like she shouldn't people, have to eat onions. Homeless people are still people who who have favorite foods and dislike foods. Like it's just like it's. I think it's actually a very and also the fact that he, she has to repeat herself several times because she's not again not a native Swede. And I'm pretty sure she got the onions. She looks at the she sandwich did. like oh. Yeah, he it. just throws it throws it at her like oh yeah I, I slam dunk I did my good deed for the day where's my reward right and that's sort of, again that's sort of what the film is. But the other thing I was going to say, which has sort of everything and nothing to do with Michael Hanukkah, is that you know talking with Ruben Oslin, a huge source of inspiration for him is YouTube, and what is a great form that abounds on YouTube, but the prank video. And there are people who are like super YouTube famous that we don't even know exist, that we can never even know exist, making so much money off of being like prank superstars. And so I think what he's doing is like trying to compete with YouTube as opposed to trying to compete with other types of art house narrative cinema is kind of interesting. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, again, if you don't like it, if you never like it, you have to at least respect the, um, you know, going after what is now a more popular art, at least. <laughs> He's a Larry David of Sweden. <laughs> yes. let's, uh, let's give him his due. Yeah, good for him. This fall, the Guggenheim Museum presents Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a film festival curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fan. This 10-week series presents independent documentaries by China's most daring artists and filmmakers, investigating the political, social, economic, and cultural conditions of contemporary China. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turnitonline. Kino Lorber is proud to release a new 4K restoration of Andrei Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice. Featuring stunning cinematography by Academy Award winner Sven Nyquist, this haunting vision of a world threatened by nuclear annihilation is also a profoundly moving personal statement from one of cinema's greatest poets. The Sacrifice opens October 20th at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and October 27th at the Quad Cinema in New York before expanding to select cities. It will arrive on Blu-ray and DVD in spring 2018. Well, let's just talk about Zama, because Zama's, that's like my favorite movie of the festival. Well, I have to say, like, it's been a pretty good year for uh, auteur cinema. It's, I mean, Lucretia Martel is just, uh, she's incredible. Mm -hmm. And she hasn't made a film in many, many years um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but yeah, I, I saw this in Toronto. I, I've had some time to kind of think about it now. So initially, I was kind of taken aback by how elliptical and almost non-narrative uh, it is. And there are all these like strange framing devices that are used that kind of cuts off She's characters. so good at that. She's mm -hmm. so good at that. Um, 
I don't know, there's a sort of disjointed feeling to watching the film just because um, I think it might have something to do with the fact that she shot a lot of footage uh, many, many years ago, and she edited some of it back then, and then she got sick and had to stop working on the film for a while and went back to the footage. And so maybe the disjointedness comes from that. Um, but it also is very much a story about a man who's trying to define who he is to himself in a place of isolation. Mm -hmm. um, I find it very difficult to summarize this film. Maybe somebody wants to take a crack. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she purposely obscures everything in her movies. I, I think it's the best movie of the festival. Um, I've seen it twice. I, it's one of those movies where, like, I, everyone said, oh, it's so bleak and it's so tough to follow. You know, and I usually have a hard time following plots in everything, like I'm going to admit. But I found that movie to be completely simple. Okay. I just watched it unfold and I knew where I was at all times. Can you try to explain what it is? Well, the, the plot, the very, there's actually a very basic plot, not, which yeah, is that sure. there's this, um, it takes place in 18th century Paraguay, or, yeah. Yeah, well, because um, part, that part of Paraguay at the time was, like, part of this large vice royalty that included Argentina and parts of what are now Brazil, and so, it, like, basically the map was cut up slightly different. And, this, and, these, and this was a, sp a Spanish magistrate is right. stationed there mm -hmm. and he wants to be stationed elsewhere he wants to go back to his wife and child um, but he ref he can't get any go-ahead from the king um, and he just sort of waits and waits and waits and slowly goes kind of crazy and then the last a lot of things happen in between but that's the basic thing and then in uh, the, the, the second half of the film he goes off on this really strange expedition that he probably knows he won't come back from, um, and it turns into kind of like a Lucretia Martel action film. Um, it's just, it's oh about, it's, a, God. It's, it's just about stasis, and then it's about action, and it's so, um, I can't wait to see yeah, this. It's a revelation. It's the coolest uh, period um, costume design I've ever seen, and I guess, I, maybe it has to do with the, the design, of the, the overall design of the film. Everyone's just like kind of sweating into their cotton yeah. gauze and all the ruffles are all kind of like uh, moist and, you know, there's a real tactile quality to all the it's textures so on screen. Um, and I have to say, I'm not gonna spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it has one of the greatest ending sequences, just visually, oh, yeah. um, that I've, I've seen. Well, everything in the last 20 minutes, right, is just incredible. Yeah. And then the final thing that happens, a lot, of, a lot of people have compared it to Barry Lyndon, or not a lot of people, <laughs> one very smart critic and friend of mine <laughs> has compared it to Barry Lyndon, yes. and um, it was a very astute comparison. I see, I, I, I see it completely, even what ends up happening. Um, in a way, um, it's it's strong. It's really. I go to Cannes every year, hoping that there's a Lucretia Martel movie, and it was mysteriously. It's absent. it's the weird story. Yeah. Nobody knows why it wasn't. Well, maybe someone knows, and but I don't it know was, why. It was it was in Venice, but was it finished? Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was absolutely. Yeah, it's just a weird. Maybe. Anyway, she's one of those people that when I go to Cannes, I she's like maybe there's maybe five directors that I just hope is on the roster. Yeah. Uh, for the for the competition the main competition and you know I've never had the pleasure of seeing one of her movies there but well especially this because it's been so long yeah. like we've yeah. had to wait so long the headless woman was what two thousand nine eight years ago eight or nine yeah yeah, yeah. 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 it's actually scary to think about how long ago the headless yeah. woman I know I yeah. know that was uh, one of the first films I saw at NYFF and that was before I worked here if people what? haven't seen headless woman 
go see Headless Woman. Yeah, she Find Holy Girl yeah. and La Cienega, which is yeah. on Criterion. She's, she's great. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, it's one of those films that if you, you know, read the novel beforehand or if you read it after, you understand how just completely she really understands the text. And, but also, she interprets it in a way that makes total sense for the screen. So, um, yeah, just shout out to Lucretia Martel. Please don't make us wait again. Well, maybe we can talk about uh, Western, another film in the festival by a female director. Nellie, I know you were uh, partial to the male lead. Well, he's incredible in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew very little about that movie going into it and sort of making sense of the dynamics between the various char characters is like sort of the central pleasure of watching the film and the central sort of anxiety of watching What's it about? It's about a um, German workers who are building a hydroelectric dam, I believe, um, in Bulgaria. So it kind of begins with this crew of men out in sort of a rural area um, by a lake or by a river, and they end up sort of, I mean, it's sort of like the what sets off the action of the film. They end up sort of hassling these girls that come to also swim in the lake. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing leads to another and it becomes like a little bit heated. Nothing, you know, horrible with that, but it kind of sets in this dynamic with the townspeople of um, these workers being sort of there and not really engaging with the people who live there. But the main character does. He sort of finds himself a little bit uh, alienated, I think, from his coworkers and uh, starts going into town and sort of in fits and starts communicating with the people of the town who um, he really doesn't share language with. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting about the film is you really never know how much people are understanding what they're saying to each other. Um, and as there's all of these like sort of flashpoints where things can go wrong, uh, where situations could become much more tense or dangerous for characters and you really don't know if the Bulgarian people understand the German that's being spoken if um, he has really understood what the they're, they're saying to him, which I, I think creates something, I, I don't know, it's like very interesting to watch, like mm -hmm. with that in the back of your mind that you never really know if people, if each character on screen really knows what's going on. And again, not knowing much about it going in, I didn't realize that this main um, character was a, a non-actor who'd been, I think I read he was like, just like spotted at like some sort of horse show or something. And he is just an incredible presence on screen. Uh, you can't take your eyes off him. And great face. Great face and like this like swagger that like you really believe that he can walk into a room full of people and just be speaking a language they don't understand and everyone like wants to hang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a really strange and interesting movie, and um, on a small note, and a, a sad and small note, uh, there have been way too many movies in this festival with horses getting killed. <laughs> and so One is that, too many. One is too many. There have been two. And then in Toronto, there was another. So there are three. Lean on Pete, the Andrew Hay movie that was in Toronto. Yeah. And then Western, and which, which we should also talk about, The Rider. Yes. Um, 
which is a really strong film, also starring an act, like a non-actor who is cast kind of just for his physicality and his looks and kind of plays himself. But um, that was a bad segue to the writer. But like, it, I, I, I watched those movies in the same day, as it turned out, and they both had these sad horse scenes. <laughs> and I really hated that. But they were excellent movies. Aliza can talk about the writer. Um, it's a film by, it's a second film uh, by a Chinese-American uh, woman filmmaker named Chloe Zhao, and uh, it's a sort of a deconstructed Western of sorts. Um, it's um, camera is sort of like close to the ground, uh, almost um, documentary style, but with a high polish, um, beautiful cinematography, focuses on the story of one guy who is was a cowboy and has to sort of like give up his career because he fell off a horse and his horse fell on his head and he really seriously hurt himself. Um, so where the film begins, he's sort of like taking a bandage off and taking, it's really gross, he's taking out all of the um, staples that are in his head and you see this huge gash on the side of his head. So then um, he has to give up his horse and um, it's a very emotional you know, thing for him and then he, he ends up doing stuff around the rodeo still and sort of unable to reconcile, you know, with the fact that he can't really do this anymore. Um, and yes, as Michael said, he's a non-professional actor and I think Chloe Zhao met him uh, by chance uh, when she was making her first feature film and uh, they just, you know, she kind of wrote the script around, you know, it was sort of inspired by him and uh, a lot of his family members and uh, his friends sort of play themselves in, in the film. I, I cannot believe his performance, um, how she worked to elicit that performance from somebody who's never been on screen before. He's just, he's so magnetic, he's so natural, he never pushes. But there are scenes where he's doing extremely emotional things, crying on camera. I mean, it's because it really is kind of like pseudo-documentary pseudo about his life, but he's yeah. playing a performance and he's, but, he, Pretty but astonishing. he did go through a very similar thing of being a cowboy, hurting himself, and then yeah, having yeah. to give up that career. But these are like very framed, set up shots. Yeah. Like perfectly lit. It's a narrative. It moves like a fictional narrative. And he is acting, and he's acting brilliantly. Yeah. It reminds me of this film that came out a couple of years ago, or maybe it was just last year, Mr. Universo, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. where the, you know, it's a, it's a sort of um, a written script that's played out by this uh, family um, about themselves and they're sort of this like touring circus troupe. Um, I think they're gypsies in Italy um, and you just see them running their circus but it's a scripted thing and it's a similar thing where you just like how are they able to play themselves in, in such a naturalistic way, um, in such a seamless way? I mean, I, I would imagine that would be more difficult than inhabiting a role that's completely foreign, you know, maybe not. A different movie that's in the lineup, the children in um, the Florida Project, are they um, professional actors? You can kind of tell, I think the kids are amazing in that movie. You, you can kind of tell that Brooklyn Prince is more of like an actor kid, yeah. but she's really good yeah, at yeah. She, You could yes, but he is, very, Florida, Florida, that's a movie you can see if you haven't already seen it because it's, it's playing in New York now. Uh, it opened last weekend and it is basically the story of um, the residents of a motel. Um, like, I, I mean, I, do we call them? Is it like, it's an SRO-like hotel. 
Um, and Willem Dafoe is the manager of the facility and most of the action sort of centers around um, a group of kids, one of the kids' mother, and the, the beautiful thing about this movie is that it, all of its metaphors, it understands exactly how far to take everything without going too far. And you, as a person who really loves Sean Baker, the guy who directed this movie, my question was, my, the challenge, I guess, as a, as a, as a moviegoer that I, that I set before him to satisfy was that he kind of understood the world he was in and this is a this this facility is amid Disney Disney World, mm-hmm. um, and so there's all there's a lot of sort of Disney oriented iconography just around, and I just there's a there's a moment in the movie where you he's so invested in these people and you just wonder what the moral line is going to be for him where it signals to the audience that he knows the difference between right and wrong because you're watching these kids do all this bad stuff and the mother is also um, a problem. And something happens and it's clear that he's got control over not only the behavior of the characters but the morality of the world in which this movie is set. And it's just really, it's a very good directorial performance and all the all of the acting, I think, is really wonderful. It's actually one of those movies where I was so impressed by the achievement of the direction that it kind of helped me overlook some of the things that about the film that, that were wrong that were bothering well, that were bothering me. I can't say yeah. right or wrong, but things that were bothering me. I mean, um, and and also just you know, this Sean Baker directed Tangerine before this, which was shot on an iPhone. Famously, this is shot on film. Um, but kind of like the histrionics of Tangerine, you know, it's all kind of like pitched at this very, very high level, and that it's looking at, it, it's like focusing on like, you know, these like street people or lower class people as they're kind of screaming at each other for two hours. There's a lot of real beauty to that film, but I was, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, what is his project here? What's he doing here? And the fact that Florida Project almost like doubles down on the things that bothered me about Tangerine, I had, um, um, and the way he worked with actors, it kind of had a, I had a hard time with it at first, um, but I'm still really impressed with the achievement. You know, he was able to make a film of this caliber and craft, you know, from this particular situation, these particular actors. Um, so I'm still working I, through it. I mean, I think the way that he pulls you into the sort of chaos of the kids' lives and like their sort of energy and like just this like whirlwind of them playing together and then starts to sort of set this rhythm with various scenes where you suddenly have that contextualized within the chaos of the lives of the parents, the adults around them. The way that that's sort of revealed over the course of the movie, this chaos of the kids' lives is actually ordered within this like larger sort of horrible for everyone involved system is, it really impressed me. And I found it, I mean, incredibly moving. Um, and I like Tangerine, but I, I feel like I liked this, uh, you know, infinitely more. This is a more mature yeah. movie in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I love Tangerine, and I love the, I love the pitch at which that movie operates, because that is also a very hard thing to do um, and maintain for, what, is that movie 78 minutes or something like that? Um, 
Tantrum. <laughs> seemed longer than seemed minutes. much longer. And he's like 30 hours from Oh me. my god, you guys. Uh, this is actually a long movie for him. It's, it's more than two hours. Um, Florida Project? I think it's, it's like just under. It's like oh, just yeah. about two hours. It's, it's long. Yeah. Yeah. But we actually, we actually, unfortunately, we have to kind of wrap up oh. soon. But oh, can we get maybe like one question from the audience real quick? Just shh. There's an audience member who asked us a question about On the Beach at Night Alone, the new Hong Sang-soo movie. Yeah, yeah, On the Beach at Night Alone. Yes, I've seen it. You've I've seen it, you've, yeah. Well, we've seen it. Uh, I mean, Hong Sang-soo, one of the most, probably the most prolific uh, filmmakers of our time, <laughs> is uh, he made three films this year, and this is one of them, and I, it's my favorite one. Um, and it's going to be coming out, uh, I think, um, here uh, very soon. Um, yeah, it sort of follows, uh, so I don't know if you guys have been tracking all of the crazy paparazzi surrounding the affair that you know uh, director Hong has been having with his actress Min, uh, Kim Min Hee, um, but this film was made uh, just on the, following the heels of, of them sort of admitting this to the press for the first time, and um, I'm getting them so mixed up. So this is the one where they go to Hamburg. Her character is sort of um, trying to get over an affair that has with a filmmaker. Up, with a filmmaker. Yes. And it's sort of revealed over the course of this first section that that's what she's doing in Hanover visiting an older friend. And then um, it sort of takes this twist where you suddenly don't know if what you just watched in the first section even happened and then um but she's still trying to get over her breakup and um and it's revealed halfway through that she's an actress it's yeah and that she sort of runs and it it's revealed over this course of these like various dinners and encounters with people um sort of the level of devastation that this breakup caused for her and you know in sort of Hong Sang Soo fashion um each evening has more and more drinks until a finally drinks, yeah. uh, there is some sort of emotional catharsis that yeah. is very unsatisfying usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I loved hearing, I don't know if this is true across the board, but that he gives his actors actual soju on set. <laughs> and so everyone's actually just getting wasted. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the dialogue is very much written, but then, you know, he sets everything up very, in a very strict way, but then allows room for accidents to happen yeah. and that happens a lot when people are drinking copious amounts of soju um, and the actress uh, gets kind of creepy like when she gets drunk and I, I love that moment when she yeah. just like turned into a documentary for a second <laughs> yeah so. I mean I, I feel like she gets drunk in ways that she I think thinks that she's like about to like have a breakthrough with something but yeah. then it's like very yeah. regrettable. <laughs> Everything that happens. <laughs> I'm sure we can all relate. Yeah. There's a brilliant Bunuelian moment of this guy who's kind of like always coming up to them. Uh, and then he kind of disappears and he comes back, but they don't really see him. There's a brilliant visual gag involving this uh, maybe imaginary character. That's all I will say. Yeah. But it's definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of scene changes that are almost metaphysical. Yeah. Yeah. My thing with him is there's always there's always one moment where you're like, oh, I would have watched a whole movie of that. Because he's not... Oh, he'll get to it. 
Yeah, I, I, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Just like, give it some time. How long do I have to wait? <laughs> well, we have no more time. We've run out of time, so we can wait for nothing else. But thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. Don't miss Turn It On, China on Film 2000 through 2017, a 10-week documentary film festival at the Guggenheim Museum, curated by Ai Weiwei and Wang Fen. Screenings on Fridays and Saturdays through December 16th. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash turniton. The Film Comet podcast is also sponsored by Kino Lorber. Kino Lorber is proud to release a new 4K restoration of Andrei Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice. A haunting vision from one of cinema's greatest poets, The Sacrifice opens October 20th at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and October 27th at the Quad Cinema in New York before expanding to select cities. It will arrive on Blu-ray and DVD in spring 2018.